Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 13. We're going to be reading all of God's word this morning of chapter 13, the whole chapter that is. Last time we saw Abram acting like the world, telling his wife and his house to hide the fact that he and Sarai were married out of fear for his own life because his wife was so beautiful. And his ruse worked too well. She's noticed by Pharaoh. She's taken to Pharaoh's house for a wife. That's why he took her. And if it were not for God's supernatural interference, the chosen people would have ended right there. The chosen line, the seed of the woman would have ended because Abraham doesn't stop it. Sarah doesn't stop it. God plagues Pharaoh's house. So that the whole thing is stopped by Pharaoh's moral compunction, as it were, when he finds out that Abram's married. It's not the husband who rushes in and saves his wife's honor. It's a pagan king who rebukes Abram, returns his wife to him immediately, and then tells this untrustworthy man, stay out of our country. We don't deal with people like you anymore. And so the father of the faithful was humiliated, was embarrassed. He had sinned. He trusted in the world. He forgot his faith as it were. If you think about it in modern terms, God saved Abram, right? Abram was a saved, converted person. And he was doing well. He gave up everything for God. He was going to live for God and he was doing well, worshiping God in the midst of a pagan world, a hostile world. He wasn't afraid. But then a particular incident arose that caused him to be afraid for his own life. And forgetting his faith, forgetting the Lord, he acted just like the world. Let's come and do something like the world and pretend and, and play a game and, and we'll get away with it and, and I'll be protected. And again, it was all for him, for, for his life putting his wife in great danger. And God, again, rescued him out of it. And even in and through it, God blessed him. He got so much more wealthy because of this ruse, because Pharaoh gave him all this abundance. And Abram now is going back to the promised land. Well, remember, he left the promised land because of famine. And famine is a, a time of famine, a time of scarcity is, is a great test to our faith. If you've ever had to go without a job or without a means of support for a time, it's a great difficulty that we go through. But so are times of abundance. Times of abundance are actually also great temptations. Abram, at least initially, did well with the famine until he got to Egypt. How will he do in times of plenty? Let's... Ask God's blessing as we turn to his word. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We confess it's only by your grace that we listen to your word at all. And so, Father, be gracious to us. Keep your promises and show yourself to be a God who saves sinners and give us grace this morning. Change us by your word through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord again from Genesis chapter 13. This is the holy and perfect word of almighty God. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. 
Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. And if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. And he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now. And look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent, and he went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And he built an altar there to the Lord. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning, I pray. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, falling back to faith. I want you to notice falling back to faith. Abram, as it were, was in Egypt for a number of months. We don't know how long, maybe a year. It certainly took time for all the events to happen that happened while he was there. And now the famine is over. And, of course, Abram's been thrown out of the land. And so he goes north into the promised land that God had already promised him where he had come from. And I know the text says he went to the south. The south in Hebrew is the word Negev. And the Negev actually is the Sinai Peninsula. It's south as as situated from the promised land. Everything in, in the Bible is built around, at least in the Old Testament, around Israel and its location. So if you're a Jew living in Israel, the south is the Sinai Peninsula, what we call the Sinai Peninsula. It's just called the Negev. It means the south. It means the dry country. It means... Sinai. So so Abram, as it were, goes north to go south to the Negev. And he is now wealthy, as we saw. But the first place Abram goes that he's interested in going is to that altar that he had built between Bethel and Ai, or Ai, as it's said in Hebrew. And it's the furthest southern altar that we're told that he built in chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12 he built two altars because the Lord appeared to him and promised him the land, promised his descendants the land. 
And so Abram, in faith in that promise, built these altars in that land that was not his. Because he believed God. And these were testimonials. These were memorials to God's promise that it would come to pass, even though Abram knew it wouldn't come to pass in his life. In your descendants will have the land. So he w- walked through the land. He worshiped God in the land, believing in the promise of God, building these altars. And so the first thing Abram wants to do after he gets out of Egypt, as he's humbled, as he's ashamed, as it were, as he has sinned, been a poor example for everyone in this house, he goes and worships the Lord. He runs back to that altar. He can't wait to get to that place. That, the, again, the, the closest one that was to him from where he was. He goes back to the altar and verse 4 says, He called on the name of the Lord. He worshiped God. He called on his name. As, as I mentioned to you before, calling on the name of the Lord is public Worship. That's what it means in Scripture over and over again. It's not Abram just leading his house in some, you know, devotional or, or family kind of worship. He's worshiping publicly. In Abram and in his house is the church, the visible church. And we see that phrase many times in Scripture, and it refers to public worship. It's more than just prayer. We think of, oh, I call on the name, I pray. It's worship. That's what happened in chapter 4 when Cain's line was busy in the world trying to build cities of man. The line of Seth was worshiping, calling upon the name of the Lord. That's the first place where we read it. They called on the name of the Lord. They publicly proclaimed God is the one we should live for in this world. And that's what Abram does as soon as he gets back into the promised land. Psalm 116 says, I will take up the cup of salvation and I will call... Upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. See how it's linked publicly to the people of God. I call upon the name. I I proclaim his salvation. I pay my vows. In other words, I'm taking that cup. I'm trusting in him. I'm proclaiming I'm his. I'm living for him. Publicly worshiping him. Acknowledging him as my God. And the psalm repeats it in verses 17 and 18. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call on the name of the Lord. So in this context of publicly thanking God, I will call upon the name of the Lord. And again it says, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of his people. That public acknowledgement, that public saying, God is my God. I thank him. I take up his salvation. I believe in him for salvation. And I'm proclaiming him. I'm paying my vows. I give myself to him for he is my God. I live for him, etc. Psalm 105 verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Tell of his wondrous works among the peoples. Sing to him, sing psalms to him. it's, It's worship calling upon his name. That's what Abram does. He worships God and it's interesting because the entire time he was in Egypt, we don't read of him doing that once. No altars are built in Egypt. No calling upon his name in Egypt. Oh, he was making a lot of money in Egypt as his wife was part of Pharaoh's harem and he's getting all of this wealth and he didn't put a stop to it. If God wouldn't have brought plagues on Pharaoh's house, we don't know that it ever would have stopped. But now he he is returning to God. His, His failure has brought him back to faith. And that's my point here. That's what you've got to do when you fall and when you fail. When you sin against God. Let that drive you back to the Lord on your knees and say, oh yes, Lord, I need thee. Think of the hymn writer, 
foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. That should be the only thing that we say. We should always feel that and know that, that we are always foul before him apart from his grace. And if he doesn't wash us, we die. There's no, I'm going to do something for God to earn my salvation or to earn this blessing from him for me, my spouse, my children. I'm foul and I can only come to the fountain to be washed because the only thing I have to bring is unworthiness and sin. And that's what happens when we fall. We're reminded of that. We're brought to our knees. Abram's brought to his knees. He worships God again, reminding himself that God chose him not because of anything in Abram, but because God chooses filthy sinners and saves them. And that's what Abram does. When you fall, when you sin, don't wait until, well, I gotta clean myself up before I get back to God. Don't listen to that lie. As sinful as you are, as filthy as you feel, that's the time to come to Christ. Because then you're saying, the only way he would accept me is because of his grace. Not because I've spent some time now and I've, I've kind of gotten over that sin a little bit. Now I'm ready to get into God's presence because look how I've prepared myself. And No. All of your preparation is more sin. We're supposed to turn away from sin. Don't ever trust in that. When we talk about preparing for worship, we talk about acknowledging that you're unworthy. That you really get it. Oh, I'm so sinful. Now I'm prepared for worship. Oh, I shouldn't be accepted by, for God. Now I'm ready, right? When we talk about coming worthily to the Lord's Supper, who comes worthily? Those who know they are utterly unworthy. That's when you're worthy to come because he saves sinners. He's not there for the righteous. He's there for the, for the sick. He's there for the, for the disease. He's there for the dead. He raises the dead to life. He gives life. Don't listen to that lie of Satan that you've got to clean yourself up or oh, how bad you are. Do what Martin Luther did. When Satan tells you, oh, you're too bad to get right with God. Now you've got to wait, you know, earn it. Do what Luther says, would say. He, he would say to Satan, oh, Satan, you don't know the half of it. I'm so much worse than you're telling me that I am right now. I am so much more sinful and more awful than what you're making me feel like. It's so much worse than that. So I'm going to Jesus because he washes sinners like me. Let that be your attitude, beloved. Fall back to faith. Secondly, I want you to notice bickering in abundance. I want you to notice bickering in abundance. Abram and Lot had been getting along well since they left Haran. Remember, Lot went with Abram. Lot is Abram's nephew. He is the son of Haran, the oldest of the three brothers. Terah would have given birth to uh, Haran when he was 70. 1166 of Genesis says when he was 70, he begot Abram, uh, Nahor, and Terah, uh, and, and Haran. But Haran was the oldest. It's, it's not birth order. It's an order of importance. Same thing said when Noah is said to have begotten Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's always Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But we know Japheth is the elder. Ham is the younger. And Shem's in the middle. But it's order of importance. Shem is the Jews. Ham are the peoples all around the Jews. Japheth are the Greeks and stuff. They don't even enter the picture for hundreds of years. And so that Japheth gets the, the least billing. Same thing's true for Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran dies young. It's out of the picture. He dies in Ur of the Chaldees before they go to Haran. Guess how Haran gets its name. We lost a son in Ur. We're going to call this place Haran. 
So Haran's born early when he's 70. Abram's probably not born until his father's 130. And that's all it says when it says he begot when he was 70, Abram, Nahor, and Terah. It just means he began to begot. That's when he has the first. Same thing's true for Noah. These aren't triplets. They're not all born the same year. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are not born in the same year. In fact, we know from chapter 11 that Shem isn't born until Noah's 502 because two years after the flood, he's 100 years old. And so it just means he began to begot. So Abram's born much later, which means, again, Haran has a son, Lot. So Lot and Abram would have been close. You know, you ever have that, that uncle and that nephew or that aunt and that niece that are like almost brothers and sisters? That's like Lot and Abram. That's why Lot goes with Abram. His father died long ago. And the one person he knew was, was Abram. And so they're together. That's why they're both chieftains. And that's why they have both of their possessions. It's not like Lot's a kid in Abram's house. They're maybe close to the same age. That's what helps us to understand this text. And now they both have a lot of possessions. Notice it mentions silver and gold. Bedouins typically don't have silver and gold. Abram would have got this in Egypt. When he's making his trades and he's doing the things he's doing. And they're giving him all these flocks and herds as his wife's being added to Pharaoh's harem. And Lot's making deals and they're making money and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But now they have a lot of money. Normally, a Bedouin's wealth is in flocks and herds. A a 100 to 200 tents is a wealthy Bedouin. They don't have land, they have possessions. And we're going to find out in the next chapter that Abram has a lot of people in his house. Remember I said that? Well, he actually has, we know at least 318 men servants in his house that can fight war because that's how many he arms. So he has hundreds of tents and Lot has hundreds of tents. These are, you you just got a picture. To this day in the Sinai, they have these large Bedouin tribes that move around and, and they have these great just households of people, all kinds of people and businesses and families and everything else. And so Abram has this and Lot has this and they have too much. It's a good problem to have, right? We've got too much wealth. We've got to do something with it. And that's when temptation comes, when we have a lot. And Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen begin to quarrel. And we see that. And we see this quarreling going on. And of course, the text reminds us that the Perizzites and the Canaanites are in the land. And these are hostile people. These are violent people and sexually immoral people and idol-worshiping people. And they see these two great Bedouin chieftains and their servants beginning to bicker. And what do they do? That's blood in the water to the shark, right? We've got some some opportunities here while these two are are starting to go against each other. You know, it reminds me of the Clint Easterwood movie when he puts the two brothers' families against each other, the two families that are quarreling in town, he saw an opportunity. Don't think the Canaanites and the Perizzites weren't seeing an opportunity. By the way, Perizzites, about two dozen times, they're always the people of the land, like the Hittites, just another pagan tribe. And Abram recognizes that, right? And he sees uh, the difficulty. And they have a lot of wealth. And Abram certainly is the chieftain here. He, they're both chiefs. They both have their own families and they have their own possessions. We see that. But Lot followed Abram. Abram didn't follow Lot. So Abram has the right to choose first. And what I want you to see is that he gives that over to Lot. Abram said to Lot, verse 8, Please let there be no strife between you and me. And between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. 
It's the herdsmen that were quarreling, but Abram realizes that it's going to spread to the whole house. He doesn't try to figure it out or fix it. To him, it seems the best thing that they're going to be able to do is to separate, is to divide. Remember, Lot's a believer. We know that from the New Testament. It'd be hard to get that anywhere else, but he is. He's called righteous Lot in the New Testament. And where does he learn to believe? Well, he's going with his uncle everywhere worshiping God. Abram's calling upon the name Lot's there with him. So it would have been at this time, I think, that Lot would have come to faith. That he would have been one following Abram, following Abram's God as they're going through the land. He endures the famine with Abram. He has to go down to Egypt with Abram. He's not mentioned there because he played no part in the story. But now he's mentioned. And God continues to test Abram, doesn't he, through his relationships. At first it was leave your father's house, leave your country, leave your family. That was hard. Then it was he and Sarai's relationship. She's so beautiful and so he's going to tell her to do something wrong. And she does, unfortunately. But the greater sin was his. And now him and Lot. And God continues to work in Abram through these relationships. And again, they're both wealthy. You know, the church, it seems to me, has made two errors when it comes to wealth. Continually makes two errors. Uh, And that is, on the one hand, it wants to say that, well, wealth is blessing from God. And if if you have wealth, then you're being blessed. You must be doing something right, and if you don't have wealth, well, then God is judging you, and you must be doing something wrong. And that attitude's been around at least since the book of Job, right? Job was the wealthiest man and the godliest man, and clearly God had blessed him because of his righteousness. And when he lost all of his stuff, what do his three friends assume? You sinned, because God gives wealth to good people, and you must be bad. So confess your sin to God and he'll restore you. And of course, the whole book of Job is about he didn't do anything wrong. In fact, it was because he was so right that God took away all this stuff. But then the other error that we constantly see in the church is to hold poverty, as Calvin calls it, a sort of angelic perfection. Calvin's saying that in a bad way. Because in the medieval church, there were those who held that, you know, poverty is is angelic perfection. That was called evangelical perfection in the medieval church. That they took the verse where Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, give all that you have to the poor and follow me. And so the monastic movement arose with the three vows of, of, of evangelical perfection over and above what the normal Christian's supposed to do, right? That you take a vow of poverty chastity and obedience and this was you know really really godly calvin at another place calls it you know, they thought poverty was the only gate to heaven that if you were poor you know you were going to be blessed of god and god was going to love you more and we see that today there are teachers unfortunately even in the pca who would say god loves the poor more it's more blessed to be poor you know if that's true then we should all be trying to be as poor as possible, right? And of course, we recognize then in heaven, God's going to make us even more poor because God loves the poor more. I mean, it's absurd to say that. But we've just got to recognize that there are a lot of scriptures that you can make both of those errors on. And this is the problem when we absolutize or we isolate verses from their context. So you can take where God promises Israel, right? If you go into the land and you do well, I'm going to bless you. Your cattle's going to have calves and your sheep are going to have lambs and your crops are going to produce. And if you rebel against me, why there's going to be a blight and your animals aren't going to produce. And and it was a matter of wealth in in that land of God's blessing and God's judgment. But then you could listen to James chapter two, verse five, where he says, my beloved brethren, listen, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, 
which he promised to those who love him. Didn't Jesus say, blessed are the poor, for they uh, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But then we also read Proverbs 3.16, which it says of wisdom, of wisdom that we're supposed to seek, right? Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. So you're going to get rich if you get wisdom. But then on the other hand, Psalm 73 says, it's the ungodly who are always at ease and they increase in riches. But then we go to Proverbs 22 and it says, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor in life. But then Proverbs 11 says, it's the violent and ruthless men who get riches. And yet Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, riches are the gift of God. And I can keep doing this. Back and forth, back and forth. Well, what does it mean? It means that it's a complicated world that we live in and that sin messes things up. And sometimes wealth can bring you into sin and sometimes poverty can. And sometimes you can be a really godly man when you're wealthy and sometimes you can be a really godly man when you're poor. Some of the wealthiest people in the Bible are some of the godliest. Abram, Job, David, And some of the poor are some of the godliest. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was awful. Lazarus was taken to Abram's bosom. Jesus himself was poor. Our confession tells us that. Our catechism. Larger catechism 47. Speaking of Christ's state of humiliation. This is a historic reform doctrine. That Jesus was materially poor in this world. Question 47 again. Says this. Christ was made of a woman of low estate... And to be born of her, I love this, this is just wonderful English, with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. (laughs) I love that. It just means he was from a poor family. More than ordinary abasement. That's the way Jesus was in. His mother had to give the offering of a poor woman for her cleansing, the two doves, because she couldn't afford a lamb. So yes, some of the most godly were poor. Some of the most godly were rich. You don't go by that in this world. What we need to do is understand the place of wealth and riches in this world. There are tools to serve God. It's true, ultimately, wealth is a good thing, right? And there is going to be wealth in heaven. The streets really are gold. The gates really are jewels. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions, not many run-down shacks. Right? I go to prepare a place for you. Eye has not seen nor his ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him, yes. Wealth and and glory. That's coming. But in this world, that's not necessarily the case. As we heard in our scripture reading, we we don't build up our treasures on earth, right? Treasures in heaven. Whether that means you get wealthy on earth or whether that means you get poor on earth because you've refused to compromise with a sinful world. And that's what Abram understands. God has given him the land and he offers it to Lot. Do you know why? Because it's more important to have God than to have the things of God. And it would be more important for Abram and Lot to have peace. And their people to be at peace. They are believers. And whatever price it would be earthly for Abram to give him, he would give it. You say, but God has given him the land. God gives everything that he gives us for the purpose of serving him. Serving him and knowing him. Having him is more. Abram recognizes the land is just a tool. God is his God. Heaven is his inheritance. He understood that from the beginning. 
And so he offers it all to Lot. Which portion do you want? And in the providence of God, Lot doesn't choose the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. He chooses the Lord Jordan Valley. And so I want you to notice, thirdly, choosing our course. I want you to notice choosing our course. Abram humbles himself before a lower person. He gives up his right for the right of peace and for the, for the cause of love. I think one of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible is Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one think others better than himself. Boy, that's easy to read, isn't it? In humility and lowliness, let each one think others better than himself. Doesn't Abram do that here? When he says to Lot, you choose? He was the chief. He was the elder. He's the uncle. He's the one leading the way. Lot should have refused. By by no means, Father Abram. I could not possibly do that. That's not what Lot does. Does he? Famine made an impression on Lot. He didn't like famine. And so in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the plain of the Jordan was well watered. Like, like Egypt was with all those tributaries. I told you, to this day, the Bedouins go to Egypt when there's a famine because there's almost never a famine in Egypt at the mouth of the Nile where all that just lush vegetation and fertile soil is. And that's the way the Jordan Valley was. In fact, in Lot's eyes, I love the way the text exaggerates. It's like the Garden of Eden, you know, that was well watered, those four rivers that we read about. And that was literally true. We talked about that. But this is what Lot's thinking. Wow, look at this. Now I know, There are always Christians who get upset with ministers who start saying that Lot did something wrong here because they like to point out there is nothing wrong with Lot recognizing this is a good, lucrative, economically prosperous place to live and for business, this is the choice to make. And they'll point out to every minister who says what I'm saying now that there's nothing wrong with what Lot says. So get off of it, pastor. And you're right. There's... Nothing that Lot says that is not good. It's just that what Lot does not say that is good. And that's the problem. Sure, if you're going to decide where to live, knowing where your business is going to prosper, knowing where it's economically stable is a good part of the decision, like five or six steps down. You know, there's four or five steps that come way before that. That's a good decision. That's important. It's part of the process. After you deal with the more important things, like where am I going to serve God when I go there? You know, it's easy for me when people come to me and they ask about moving somewhere. The very first question I ask them is, is there a Bible-believing church in that place that you can serve God at? That you know they're faithful to the word of God. I don't necessarily ask for a PCA church. I don't think we're the only denomination out there. Or is there a Bible-believing church where the word of God is faithfully preached? Well, then you can know that maybe it's God's will that you go. All right, that still doesn't resolve it. Is there a fellowship of Christians that you can serve at? Is there a place where your family can be safe and work and so forth? Oh, and then is it prosperous for your business and so forth? The only thing Lot looks at is economic prosperity. 
You can say all you want about the text, but the text says this is why he made his choice. He saw that it was like the Garden of Eden. It was lush. It was rich. It was fertile. And he's a Bedouin. He's got flocks and herds. And that's the only thing the text says he considers. And all of the commentaries, without exception, all fault him for this. Because if the text wanted to say he did think of something else, it would have told us that. He didn't. He thought of this and this alone. And not only does he move there, as we see in verse 12, he actually dwells in the cities of the plain. And Abram never did that. He goes to Mamre to the trees. He goes to the mountains by Bethel and I. He doesn't go into these Canaanite cities and get infected with their idolatry and unbelief and wickedness. They're corrupt peoples. Lot moves into the cities. In fact, Lot pitches his tent all the way right next to the gates of Sodom. The text says it. He pitched his tent right where Sodom was. And the men of Sodom, it says, were exceedingly wicked before the Lord. And it's not like they didn't know that. They've been in the land now for a number of years. They know where Egypt is. They know where these cities are. They know what they're about. They've been going around. That's not important to Lot. You make more money down there. That's where you prosper more. Oh, who cares about the people? I believe. I don't, it's not going to rub off on me, even though Proverbs and other places. 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't be deceived, because we are. Oh, it's not going to bother me. I can watch this pornography. It's not going to affect me. I can do and hang out with these people who cuss and swear and gossip, and it's not going to affect me. My best friends are unbelievers, and it's not going to affect me. It is going to affect you. Don't be deceived. You will become corrupt, and you won't see it. And you'll think you're so free and libertine and cosmopolitan, so much more smarter than other Christians as you become more and more corrupt. Lot did not understand that. Abram did. Lot, notice it. He lifted up his eyes and he saw. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember somebody else who did that? And when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. All three of those things are true, just like everything Lot said is true. The tree was beautiful. Everything God made was beautiful. The tree was good. Everything God made was good. She just wasn't supposed to eat of it. But she looked with her eyes what she saw, right? How about in Genesis 6? And the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. That was true. They were beautiful. The daughters of men. The daughters of mere men. Unbelievers. And so these Christian men, these believers, I know I'm speaking anachronistically, we're talking before the flood even. These believers in God, the line of Seth, the sons of God, who called upon the name of the Lord, who worshiped God, they married unbelieving women because they were so pretty. You know, Samson kept doing that, right? Boy, those Philistine girls are so nice looking. I'm just going to have to get myself one of them Philistine girls. And we saw what happened to him. How about when Ham saw the nakedness of his father? Saw an opportunity to make a joke about dad. Dad's drunk in the tent, naked. Make fun of dad, dishonor him in the eyes of his brothers. When he saw the nakedness. How about when Abram seeing the beauty of Sarai? Every time 
these human beings like us are looking and judging with their eyes on the horizontal plane about what it means, what do they do? They forget God and they choose according to the world. They choose according to the flesh. They do not choose according to the faith because the things of God are unseen. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You can't look here and choose by faith. You've got to look from your heart at the word of God, at the promises of God. And that's how you choose. That's how you know God's will. I mentioned to you before when Robin and I were, uh, it's funny, I have some friends here from New Life and sometimes I share part of my testimony. And, and when we were, when I was going to seminary part-time and trying to figure out, you know, what to do with it and starting to think I should probably try to get a degree, even though I had no intention of being a minister, people would talk to me about that. I'd say, no, I'm not going to be a pastor. I was taking classes because I loved it, right? And, but it was getting hard. We had two children now and I wasn't sure how we were going to keep this up. You know, I'm, I'm working full time. I have two kids. I have a wife and I'm trying to go to seminary and it's, it's now four years at seminary. And I finally have the credits that one year gives you full time. So at this pace, I'm on the 12 year plan. And I knew I couldn't even keep that pace up because I had taken two or three classes once or twice. And I couldn't do that anymore now that we had two kids. So I told Robin, you know what, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, I, and I, I saw two other guys at the seminary. And I know I've told this story before, but I think it's been a while. And one of them, both of them, by the way, were like me. Young wives, young children, full-time job. And yet both of them were going to seminary full-time. And I looked at them in awe, like, how can you do this? I mean, I'm barely getting enough sleep anymore. And I'm, you know, you know, and again, I'm putting my utmost that I can into everything. So I asked the one guy, I said, how are you doing it? And he said to me, just get C's on your report card, on your grades. Just get C's. In other words, be the full-time husband and dad that you're called to be. Be the good employee that you're called to be. Just be a lousy student. Neglect your studies and get C's because what's important is the degree. Then you can begin to serve God, right? Beloved, you're serving God where you are now. You can't do that. I knew I couldn't do that. I knew he was unfaithful. My job at that moment was to be the best student I could be and to be a husband and father and to be the best employee I could be for the glory of God. That's, that's what I was called to. This is how you determine God's will in your life. What are you called to now? If you're married, you're called to be a godly spouse. If you're a child, you're called to honor your parents. Right? You're all called, if you're able-bodied, to work and provide for your living. We're all called to do all this. We're called to worship God on the Lord's day. So we, you know, these are the, this is how we determine God's will. So I asked the other guy who was a good student. He was in those, that circle of, you know, reformed guys. And we would debate and, and always stay and talk with the professors. I said, how are you doing? He said, it's only two years, two more years. It's only two years. In other words, be the student, good student, be there at work. Just let your, mom be a, let your wife be a single mom for two years. Kids are resilient, right? We always hear that. Kids are resilient. Just don't be a good dad. Don't be a good husband. I knew I couldn't do that. And so I let it go. And I told Robert, I'm not going to seminary anymore. And that's when Don Blank called my wife and said, what if the church pays all your bills so you can quit your job and go to seminary. It was when I let everything go in order to have God 
and said, I can't take classes because God's more important. I am a father. I am a husband. I've got to work to provide. The classes have to go. When I let that go to choose God, God gave it all back to me in a way we never dreamed because we chose God. We're going to follow God, whatever it means. No seminary then, okay, because I choose God. That's why I named this sermon, by the way, some of you probably wondering where it came from, slouching towards Sodom, right? It's actually a literary parody of a poem of William Butler Yeats who wrote at the beginning of the 20th century an Irish poet as Ireland is gaining their independence and freedom and he saw his people become enamored with the things of this world and so he wrote a poem probably his most famous poem called The Second Coming and in that poem he talks about the Christian church kind of falling asleep in 2,000 years and forgetting the things that are important he says the falcon can no longer hear the falconer. It's like things are spiraling out of control. The center can't hold anymore. We're not seeking the Lord anymore. And eventually things are going to fall apart. And then this poem ends with a rough beast. It's our now come around at last. After 2,000 years of a stony sleep. Slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. Because the beast will imitate Christ. And do the things that Christ did in a worldly sense. And that's what I see Lot doing. And that's the temptation. To just slouch towards Sodom. Because it's easier. It's prosperous. And to not consider the things of God. To not put God first. No matter what it costs you. And so fourthly and lastly. Counting on Christ. I want you to notice counting on Christ. It would have been hard for Abram to lose Lot. His his brother. His son in a sense. He's gone now. And so what does God do immediately? Verse 14, after the Lord, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord speaks to him. And notice what he says in verse 15. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants. We just got something new. First time ever promised to Abram. What did, it, did you catch the new thing? In 12, it was, I give all the land to your descendants. Now it's to you and your descendants. Yeah, Lot just left you. Maybe you thought it was going to be through Lot because your wife's barren and he could kind of be an adopted son to you. No, no, no. To you and your descendants. And then God expands it further. When Abram has let go of the land, when he's offered it to Lot, God says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. First time we get this, he's going to multiply your sins. And then he says, and this is something they did back then. When you, when you sold real estate, you would walk through the land that you had just bought as the final sort of part of the procedure. And that's why God says in 17, arise, walk in the land through its length, through its width. I give it to you. Walk through it. You, it's yours. Even though the Canaanites and the Perizzites and everybody else owns it as it were. Abram by faith, again, looking for the inheritance that ultimately was heaven. Understanding that all things are under God's feet. That God already owns the land. So in faith, he builds an altar to the Lord at Hebron now. Another one. Because it's already God's. Again, he doesn't have to go out and conquer it by worldly means. It's already God's. He just has to believe in God and follow him and live for him. Whether that means being rich or poor, whether that means moving or staying, whether that means famine or plenty, follow the Lord. Do you see God's compassion, God's love for his servant in this text? You might not see it. There's one particular place, and I'm going to close this with this, and I apologize for the length. But in verse 14, 
the little Hebrew particle na occurs. It's just a word in Hebrew, two letters, na, N-A, and it means please. It's translated that way most of the times. Verses 8 and 9, when, Lot say, or when Abram says to Lot, please, please, it's na, na. In chapter 12, when Abram twice says to Sarai, please, please, it's na. It means I pray thee, I entreat thee. A great translation is the word please. It occurs over 70 times in Genesis, 400 times almost in the whole, Testament, whole Old Testament. It's a way of entreating someone. I pray thee, please. And here, it comes from the mouth of God to a human being made from the dirt. Only four times in the Bible does God say please to a human being. And this is the first. When he asks Abram to do what is beyond the power, what is beyond the ability, what is beyond the comprehension of men to do, God says to him, Lift up your eyes, please. And look and see your land. In Hebrew, sana enaka. Lift up, please, your eyes. God says please to his servant. Because God wants Abram to believe. To believe by faith. To accept by faith, to live by faith, to follow God, to see all of his earthly possessions as mere instruments, means to serve God, to give to whatever. Please lift up your eyes and believe me, because I'm giving you this land. It's yours. Beloved, living by faith in the sure hope of eternity and all of this world that God has promised to us means that we can afford to be unselfish that we can afford to be generous, not slouching towards Sodom, but aspiring towards heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness that you have given to us all things in Christ already, that he is already seated in the heavenly places, already above all principality and power and might and dominion. Already all things are under his feet. Already he's given as head over all things to the church and we are seated with him now. Lord God, help us to believe it. Help us to believe it. Believe it that we would count this mortal life and all the goods not dear to ourselves because we already have all things in Christ, that we would live like Abram, unselfishly trusting in you, though we too live in a land of Canaanites and Perizzites. Help us to be at peace with one another, to trust in you and to strive by all the means of your appointment to see your name glorified and honored and worshiped in this land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.